0: morning. Glad everybody's here this morning. Um, hopefully uh, lots of y'all are able to watch online as well. We appreciate folks you're keeping up with us that way. Um, we'll encourage you that if you're able, um, we'd love to have you come and fellowship with us in person or at least with another um, gospel-centered church. Uh, in-person fellowship, I think, is always God's plan for us. But certainly there are times when um, being able to view online is a uh, blessing for those of you who can't get out for various reasons. And we're glad to be able to have that ministry as well. Let's begin with the psalm this morning, which is Psalm 85. I'll read that for us if you'll follow along. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. God bless the reading of his word. Um, this morning um, we've got lots of concerns for prayer, I'm sure. Um, I want to uh, share with you one um, joyful one. Um, let me see if I can navigate my computer screen here for just a moment so I can be able to um so I think this is legal for me to do at this point if you have not had an opportunity to see Russell proposed to Karen yesterday and she accepted and so we have an official engagement so definitely calls for celebration um told Karen it's nice to officially be able to call her Family now, and so uh, we're very happy about that. Be praying for them as they move forward uh, toward uh, their wedding uh, this uh, fall or winter, and uh, they're uh, making plans for that and keeping posted about those things. But certainly be praying for Russell and Karen, and they're away uh, today, um, gone away to uh, see a production together and uh, be able to have a little bit of time um, this weekend. So uh, just be praying for to travel. Um, thank you for praying for us. We were away last week. and uh, um, for me, with cult things, um, we're kind of getting some things in better shape. I was able to get another spinal infusion this week, and I feel like Hercules right now, but I just <laughs> have to be careful <laughs> not, not to do too much, right? Yay. It's uh, a blessing to be able to feel a little bit better. Um, we have a lot of situations, and I'm sure, I know there's some that we've discussed that may not be things that we can broadcast this morning, but are there others? There's specific things that you'd like to ask us to pray for, um, that you're aware of, that are, um, that we want to share together. Pray for Josh and Zach. They're getting ready to hit the road with kids um, for Connecticut right after church. And then uh, in a couple of days, uh, getting ready to uh, make their way south, um, far south, um, is able to bring peace and be able to bring wholeness there. And just pray for those people involved, both the, the ones who lost loved ones and um, the people who were in the line of fire and who were trying to protect them and, and also for you know, people who things like that. Because, You know, everybody who does something like that is somebody's son or daughter. Everybody who does that kind of thing does it because there's something badly wrong, and you know we need to to pray for those people and uh, and seek God's best for them. Uh, Pray for um, restoration of families and. uh, for uh, those who are sick, for those who are in need, um, I know there's quite a few that are uh, uh, in our area that uh, are having health problems and stuff right now, so just keep praying for each other. And let's uh, just take our hearts before the Lord as we prepare to worship. God, we love you. First and foremost, God, I guess that's what we come here to proclaim, that we love you. And... We know that because your word tells us you love you because you first loved us, because you chose us in Christ, because you made us your own and called us to yourself. And God, we rejoice in that this morning. We pray, Father, that everyone who um, hears this uh, service today would know the joy of belonging to you. Father, that you would call and draw hearts uh, through the mystery of your word and of song and prayer. And God, that you would... Um, build up your kingdom. We pray, Father, for those who are hurting, um, for families in distress, for those in sickness and medical doubt and concern. We pray for um, those who are traveling and those who are planning for the future and all of the things that life brings. on um, All those things remind us that this is a very uncertain world that we live in, that we are not promised a world, a life without uh, Struggle with relief. In fact, God, you very much promises that those things will be a part of living here because of the brokenness of sin and the pain, and the imperfection of the place we live and yet, God, you promise that we don't take a step in any of those things that you're not right in the middle That we never walk alone for a single moment, no matter how difficult circumstances become. Lord, we love you and thank you for that promise. We pray, God, that you'd be uh, exalted and have you here this morning for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Oh no. come and lead us in song.
1: Let's start with
0: 154.
1: tune or it seems like I didn't tune? we okay.
0: We'll be back on chapter 20 next week. We're going to take the first section. I won't read through the entire chapter for us, but I also want to um, be prepared that we're going to only cover the first passage because it's so deep and it's such a relevant matter right now in our society. And I just think it's worth our time to talk about. So let's read through Leviticus chapter 20 and then we'll uh, break it down. The Lord spoke of Moses, saying, Say to the people of Israel, any one of the people of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn in Israel, Who gives any of his children to Molech shall surely be put to death The people of the land shall stone him with stones I myself will set my face against that man And will cut him off from among his people Because he has given one of his children to Molech To make my sanctuary unclean And to profane my holy name And if the people of the land Do at all close their eyes to that man When he gives one of his children to Molech And do not put him to death Then I will set my face against that man And against his clan And will cut him off from among their people him and all who them followed him and pouring after Molech. So right here I want us to just kind of break and um, talk about this first passage and then we um, give enough time we will read the rest of the, the chapter. But right now I want to stop for a moment here because I think it's important to get some perspective on this. Obviously the first question that would come at you if you've never studied this passage before is, who the heck is Molech, right? Um, and unfortunately that's not one of those things that's quite as straightforward as we'd like for it to be. Scholars kind of debate back and forth, but generally the, the accepted understanding is that Molech was a fertility deity who was worshipped by the Canaanites. Um, and fertility in this sense doesn't mean necessarily just childbirth, but also, you know, crops and all that. That all seen together in a way that we've kind of disconnected in our society, right? Because we don't necessarily, we talk about fertility in terms of being able to have children. We talk about fertility in terms of growing food, but we don't really see that as a whole in the way that people would have in the early days, and so Canaan is a land that's kind of notorious for having fickle weather. Uh, they can have some really wet seasons, some really dry seasons, goes back and forth. Canaan did not have a big fertile river with what we call an alluvial basin, an area that floods and provides all that nice silt that you get like along the Nile or the Tigris or the Euphrates or those kinds of places that makes really fertile places grow crops. You know, that's an ideal situation if you live in the, the area where a river floods out into and that floodplain gets all that silt built up and you get really nice fine topsoil and it's really good for growing vegetables and fruits and things like that. But gaming didn't have that kind of thing. So these people would have probably been predisposed to you know some sort of superstitious kind of seeking after fertility and trying to get better crops and those kinds of things. Um, Challenges there probably would have made point of them toward this kind of thing. So apparently this was a sort of native god to the region of Canaan. Um, What we can say, though, with some pretty good certainty based on this passage and other ones, is that the worship of Molech um, centered around child sacrifice. Um, It was seen as the giving of one kind of fruit, the fruit of the womb, in exchange for the promise of another kind of fruit. um, A good crop. So again, that kind of you know human fertility and agricultural fertility. In our day and age, we just don't really see those as one whole. We kind of divorce them from each other. But in this day and age, they would have been seen as much more connected. And so um, the idea was that you know sacrificing a child would appease this god Molech and would uh, would uh, you know then lead him to give uh, a better harvest and that kind of thing. And you know. Even right there, we start to see a balance, because you're talking about the sacrifice of a child's life, but you also have to consider that when you're talking about agriculture, when you talk about being able to raise food, when you're talking about people who couldn't go down the angles or food line and get their groceries right, I mean if what you raised on land was your only opportunity to eat, you're really very much talking about the balance of human life there too, right? You're talking about sacrificing a child's life. You're also talking about preserving the lives of those who are already living. And so we already see this kind of tension going on here. And when I start to read that, I start to realize, wow, there's a reason that so many people are really struggling and confused with these kinds of issues in our day and age, because there is a lot to consider there. There is a lot there that's difficult. Um, Clearly, though, I think, in what God says here to Moses, God despises this practice of child sacrifice. If we read on into 2 Kings, we see that even the royalty of Israel eventually became involved in this, taking the children outside the gates of Jerusalem, outside the walls of the city, to sacrifice them. So this was something that was an ongoing thing. Um, and we even have a verb in modern English that comes from this to emulate um, to... Destroy something by fire, or sacrifice something by fire, or it's used by extension in literature sometimes to, you know, mean you know, burning the cornbread or something. um uh, it's that idea of using fire to to sacrifice or destroy something. Um, but God has forbidden, I think, very clearly forbidden the Israelites here to take part in this kind of practice. So the question comes: Does God really class abortion, the ending of a child's life, with murder? Or is this like an isolated commandment for one time and place? Is this something that's not? Because we know that some of these things, right, we've talked about God gave some commandments here that were overarching moral things that were supposed to follow God's people forever. And then we've got some that, we you know, were given for a time and a place for protection of people under those circumstances. Or maybe, in some cases, as I've said, maybe it just seem to be about, here's something that God requires of you. And it's not that there's a practical explanation for it, at least that we can understand. But God says, I ask you to do this thing. You do this in obedience to me. I will bless you if you do this. You will not be blessed if you don't do this. And it's about obedience. In this case, though, I think we can say that there's a real consideration here about something that that follows us to this day. Because clearly, the ending of child life, abortion, is something that is a huge hot-button issue in our day and age right now. And I think we need to consider that. Now, of course, surgical abortion wasn't an option in biblical times. It wasn't something that was really um, known. Um, in ancient times, a baby was probably only going to be killed if a woman from mother also died in the process. Um, there's an example in Amos um, chapter 1 that says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four I will not revoke its punishment, because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead in order to enlarge their borders. Um, So God does say that it seems to fall into a category that's special, that's different than uh, perhaps um, just attacking a woman in our society very um, ambiguously. You know, we both say legally, when I say we, I'm talking about the legal system. We say that, you know, okay, well maybe an early pregnancy is not considered human life for some purposes. But in many cases, if you kill a pregnant woman, you're guilty of the blood of two How does that work, right? I mean, that seems kind of messed up. And we you know, say, well, in one case, it doesn't count as a life, in another it does. Um, and it's illegal for another person, a stranger, to end that life, but it's not illegal for the person carrying that life to end it. I mean, isn't that kind of talking out of both sides of our mouth, it seems like? Um, you know, now that the Supreme Court and a lot of other world authorities have um, started to really question the status of fetus in the womb until it reaches a certain point of development, I think it really becomes important for us to establish in Scripture what God's view is on this. We need something firm to be able to hang on to, at least that we can be able to say, we can pretty definitively say this is what God has given us in His words. So at what stage does God consider a fetus to be a human being? so that the taking of his life would be considered murder Psalm 139 comes to mind Um, I think it's very definite um, that God has personal regard for the embryo from the time of conception the psalmist says for thou hast formed me in my inward parts thou hast weaved me in my mother's womb verse 16 goes on thine eyes have seen my unformed substance and in thy book they were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them so even as thousands hundreds of thousands millions of embryos and fetuses have been aborted across the world we can see that god cares about the unborn that god says that he personally knows them um, just as truly before they're born as after they're delivered you know one of the things from you know the perspective of josh and i talk about this a lot with you guys you know one of the important things about Understanding science is that science reveals to us the mechanisms by which God accomplishes things. And we see when we start to study genetics and study the incredible ways that you become who you uniquely are. You know, God has ordained those things from before your existence. Um, in Jeremiah 1 5, the Lord says that Jeremiah, this young prophet who's just getting to start out, or he's kind of on the threshold of his career. You remember what God says to him? He said, when I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before I formed you, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I've appointed you a prophet to the nations. God says he appointed Jeremiah to bring the, the gospel to the nations before Jeremiah ever existed, before he was ever born. It's not that Jeremiah was born and did something right or you know, whatever. God saw some characteristic in him and said, okay, here's somebody I can use. God says, I had you planned to do this before you ever existed. It certainly implies that God knew Jeremiah even before he was conceived. So apparently we as human beings have an identity in God's mind that's established from everlasting. You know, We are, like God, eternal beings. Scripture is pretty clear about that. Everyone's eternal. No one just stops being. And we don't have a lot of Scripture about it before we come into this world, except for these references again and again that say that God knew us You about us had plans for us specifically for you before you came into existence. And so there is a before part of eternity that, you know, we don't think much about that. We're we're interested in the part that lies ahead, right? Because the other part is, in our minds, behind us because we operate on timelines. I don't think that God necessarily sees time in quite the linear way that people do, but clearly God knows and God has plans for people even before they exist. Um... The other thing that we see in that verse from Jeremiah is that it's God himself that forms that fetus and governs and controls all those natural processes that produce the miracle of human life. And that God, because he has a specific plan for individual people, that every life then must really matter to God, right? There's no life that's not important to God, because there's no life that God doesn't have a plan for. know, Romans 9 says that, you know, there's some vessels, some people that... Are created for God's glory, and there are some who glorify God in their ultimate destruction because of the rebellion, but God has a plan to glorify himself in all people. So anybody who takes the life of human at any stage it seems we have to reckon with God. Um, Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So if the question is, when does the embryo begin to be a creature to bear the Imago Dei, that image of God that Scripture says in us, is in us? The scripture says apparently is from the moment of conception and maybe even before. Um, and God says that if someone ends human life, he will require blood at the hands of his murderer. Whether it's an attacker or medical doctor or a parent or whatever. I mean Isaiah 49, the servant of the Lord says, Yahweh has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. Think about that. That's a question we get posed in the Supreme Court. At what point in the gestation of um, Christ in Mary's womb did he become the Son of God? You know, at what time between conception and birth would an abortion of that baby have amounted to a heinous sacrilege after three months or three days or three hours or three minutes or you know, when does life become life? Remember what the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will tell upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So when did the miracle happen? Wasn't it in his conception? Wasn't it in the very moment that life began? That was really the incarnation of Christ. Um, you know, Luke brings out the same kind of point about John the Baptist. You know, remember that uh, uh, said of John the Baptist, "For who will be great in the sight of the Lord and be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from birth, born with the Holy Spirit, born with the guidance of God's Spirit, come who God created him to be." We're not told that there was, you know, some point where. Um, the, the greatest prophet, as, as we read the scripture, Here John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit. But we do know that it may have been from the very moment of conception. It might have been long before the time that the springboard or other bodies say that that was a viable fetus. What we do know for sure is about six months into gestation, John's mother Elizabeth comes to see Mary and her. Baby leaps in her womb in response to that interaction. We know that the Holy Spirit in her, in that unborn child, responded and bore witness of what the angel had promised her. There used to be in the early days of the abortion debate, there was this kind of thing going around, and even a lot of evangelicals really got into this. Um, that was looking at Exodus 21 to take it to mean that killing an unborn fetus was less of a sin in God's eyes than killing a child that was already born. It was kind of this, I think, a misreader and misunderstanding of Scripture. In the ESV, um, Exodus 21, 22-25 says this, When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who had her, shall surely be fined. As the woman's husband shall so impose on him, and he shall pay as the judge is determined. But so if there is harm, then he shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, bird for bird, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Um, this idea that taking the life of a fetus was somehow less of a sin was just based on, unfortunately, a bad translation. Um, even the NAS, NASB, the New American Standard, unfortunately it kind of perpetuates the same thing that we see in the King James Version which is not very accurate in the original Hebrew. So it says that if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with a child so that she has a miscarriage, yet there's no further injury. She shall surely be fined as the woman's husband had made a man And in the margin NASB acknowledges that that phrase that it renders as a miscarriage literally means so that the children come out. And the same term gets used here um, it's always used in scripture for in- children from infancy up to 12 years old the time that we would consider them adults in jewish culture um it's Yaled or um, "yaladim" um, for multiple children the plural gets used here because there's the potential that the mother might have twins or triplets or something or whatever and that's the way Hebrew expresses it but the point is if the result of the blow to the woman in the fight is that her children are born and they're healthy and they're okay then there's less of a penalty but if the children are aborted if the children don't survive then that seems to point back to this eye for an eye tooth for a tooth that could have Hammurabi kind of you know justice um the hebrew there just is pretty clear that it's indicating you know that the lesser crime is if the children are born that they're okay but it doesn't seem to say that if you can cause the death of a child, that's somehow less of a crime. Um, a really good translation of that would probably say, And when men struggle together and strike a pregnant woman or wife, and her children come forth, but there's no injury to them, he shall be certainly fine as the husband of the woman shall impose on him, And he shall give or pay in the presence of the judges. If there shall be a, but if there shall be an injury, then you shall pay life for life. The, pesh, the hot and the pesh, Soul for soul, life for life. Nepesh is that idea in Hebrew of the thing that makes a thing alive. It's that intangible thing that you can't see, but a young child can tell the difference between a live bird and a dead bird, right? You know, from a very young age, we can identify something that's living and something that's not living, inanimate an objects and so We know that there's a thing, and we have various names for that in different cultures. Basically, in Hebrew, that word is Nepesh as the essence of life. It's also the same word that's used in Hebrew for soul um, very frequently. So I don't think there's really any ambiguity there at all. Um, if there's an injury to the mother and the child dies, then it seems to be a requirement of the wife life. So it's not a second-class kind of status attached to a fetus, though that was an argument early on in the pro-abortion kind of movement. Um, and in the case of... Um, Taking a human life and, um, and justified punishment through civil authorities for something, and there's a capital punishment or a case of defense of oneself. Those kind of things do fall into a different kind of class in Scripture, but this seems to fall in the same class as intentional murder. Um, there's nothing in the Bible, um, unfortunately, as often happens, and nothing really specific about the problem of when the continuation of the fetus of the womb. Would pose a serious threat to the mother's life. Uh, It's probably within reason to conclude that an existing, already living life may have some more intrinsic value than a life that hasn't yet begun, but we aren't given that specifically. It's like so many things in Scripture, I think God often has purposeful omissions, things that He doesn't spell out for us in black and white. In most cases, though, it turns out that babies that would have turned out to be so sick that they wouldn't have been able to have a meaningful life often, you know, the the pregnancy terminates on its own, or children die at childbirth, those kinds of things. It's very sad, but it appears to be within God's will to allow that to happen sometimes. Um, But there's certainly, those who were born and never achieve what most people would think of as Normal high function, whatever that survived for many years. Um, Ancient people didn't have a way to diagnose that. Now we do. Now we can do amniocentesis and take some amniotic fluid and we can be able to identify um, risk for genetic conditions and stuff, and it raises a lot of questions. Um, Christy and I, in our life, were really blessed because when we were trying to get a family, um, there were some challenges there, and we just by God's promise, ended up with a um, fertility clinic that was a practice of Christian doctors. They were wonderful to us. We ended up with an all-Christian OB practice, which we had no idea if we went going the know that they were all-Christian people. We ended up with an all-Christian pediatrics practice. God has just blessed us in that. But our, our OB, when we were going, you know, we were pregnant, and, you know, they talked to us about this. If you want an MEOC thesis study, they said, we can do it if you ask for. And we will do it again. But they said, "Let us make our position clear. We're pro-life, and we assume that you're here because you feel the same way. And if that's the case, if you wouldn't change anything, why would you do it?" And we prayed about that, And so we wanted to make sure we're doing the right thing. We took some time to think that, and we said, "No, you know, there's not a reason to. We're going to love whatever child God gives us, and we're going to raise whatever child God gives us. He is Lord, and..." Our second son, of course, was born with Down syndrome. We didn't even know for a couple of weeks that he had it. Um, in a lot of parts of the world, people with Down syndrome—I'm picking on that one because we have—we have we got 3 kids with Down syndrome right here in our little Okay. In a lot of parts of the world, people with Down syndrome are basically the same. In most of the world, there are no people with Down syndrome to be seen because they're all aborted. Um, that is a commonplace thing with a lot of. Issues nowadays that in a lot of more um, prosperous westernized countries that children who seem to have anything that's considered an that abnormality are just out of hand aborted. Um, and it's very startling because we spend some time every year or two when we can, we spend some time in Germany and spend time on missions there and that kind of stuff, and have friends there. And we notice people take note of Cooper because they don't often see people something that's not that common. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here and speak on behalf of, of Ian and Chieco and Josh and Becca. I think that in the interactions that we've had, I think it's fair to say that all of us agree that we're pretty doggone happy with each other. <laughs> you know? Early on, we weren't sure. We were scared of that. We didn't know what it going to be like to raise a child with special needs. But you know what? It didn't take long before we figured out we wouldn't change people if we could. We really wouldn't, because Cooper has a personality and a presence in the world and an influence on people that is unique because of the way that God's made. And Scripture tells me that God knew about our children before they were ever conceived, before the families ever came together and produced and came God knew about that, and God had a plan for that for His glory. So those lives are very valuable. Our children are precious us. All of our children. And I think that that's what the Scripture is really getting down to. Here. That that's really what God is trying to teach His people. The principle here for us is that life is important. And we don't get to make decisions about who lives and who doesn't live because we think we know better than God. God has placed those lives where they are and created them as they are for a reason for a purpose. And that purpose is His glory. Now, it's part of the moment. I've said before, and this is maybe, a, it's not a, a, a unique distinctive, but it's a, a distinctive kind of um, a more um, biblical Protestant reform kind of mindset. And, you know, one of the things that we acknowledge is that human existence is about God's glory. Now, knowing all of you, I think we all pretty well take that, out of hand, we we probably accepted that most of our Christian lives. But I want to tell you, through most of the 20th century, particularly, and up till now, that has not necessarily been the teaching of the church. It's not that anybody has ever said that wasn't true, but the subtle message through an awful lot of modern times, kind of the church has been that most of our lives is about our pleasure and our happiness and our fulfillment and all that sort of stuff. And we have that humanist movement that influenced Christianity significantly um, through the tail end of the 19th century up to now. And it's a very important distinction because when you understand that your life and the life of the person sitting next to you are about God's glory, first and foremost, that God created you to glorify Him and lift Him up for other people so that other people might be drawn to Him, When you understand that, that's a different perspective on life. That's a different understanding of the value of life. That's a different idea of, I don't get to pick and choose who should live and whose life is worth living. You know, I've seen people who had very serious um, issues. I've worked with um, young people who had things like um, spina bifida or um, multiple sclerosis or very serious things like that. And You know, there have been moments when I've questioned. I said, does this person have a meaningful life? Does this person have the potential to live a life that feels like it's fulfilling to them and the people around them? And then I stopped and I realized, you know, that's not what it's about. That's not God's purpose here. God's purpose is that he be lifted up, that he be glorified, that all men see him, and he does that through often the most imperfect vessels, as we would see it. You know, as I like to say, you know, sometimes the more cracked the pot, the better God can use it. And I think that's often true for those of us who maybe don't have special needs in those kinds of ways, but we all have our own special issues, right? We all struggle with depression. We all struggle with um, self-doubt. We all struggle with self-image issues. We all struggle with all sorts of things. And yet, those weaknesses, those things that the world sees as imperfections, or making us somehow damaged goods are the very things that God uses for His glory to shine through. I know that abortion is a very controversial issue and as we say a lot at BRC, we're not trying to tell you how to think. We are going to challenge you to think and we're going to challenge you to think in light of Scripture, to understand that God's Word is given to us to be our ultimate authority for all that we believe and do. And that we are to submit every thought and every action to the authority of God. And that, you know, that God's script, God's Word is a revelation of that for us. God's nature, God's character, what God believes about life. And that we're to make decisions. And that we're to vote. And that we are to act. And that we are to live in ways that line up with that. Um, so I challenge you. Read this passage, this short passage, and we're not going to get the rest of 20 today. We'll come back to it next week. But read over this passage, consider what God's really getting at here. Because this isn't one of those seemingly arbitrary kinds of rules here. This seems to be something where God's very specifically driving at something that was a pagan practice that was going on in the midst of His people and saying, You cannot do this because this is murder. This is taking human life. This dishonors me. This dishonors the plans that I have for the world. Let's pray together. Father God, um, we pray that you was clear clarity um, about your will. Lord, um, thank you for the, the mysteriousness sometimes of Scripture, the fact that you don't always give us black and white about everything. Thank you, God, that um, for whatever reason, you've seen fit to Invite us into the process of reasoning. As you say, come let us, reason together. That you give us your word, and yet your word doesn't give us a black and white checklist. Rather, it challenges us to understand your nature through its revelation. To understand your will for your people. And to find the ways that we can honor you and obey you best in our lives. Lord, what comes to this issue of the sanctity of human life? Give us clarity. Help us, God, to see your intention. Help us, God, to see your desire. Help us more than anything, God, to, to get at the root of it. Because the problem is we often debate the mechanics of something instead of getting at the spiritual root. And the spiritual root is this it seems to be that you know before ordaining the lives of all people, before conception even happens. That all human life exists because of your purpose and your will. That there's no accident. That there's no blunder in what you do. That you have the intention that every life that you've created should be lived to your glory. Lord, help us to um, bear witness to that. But help us, God, to do it um, as brokenhearted saints, as people who understand that um, other people are just as damaged and just as confused as we are. Help us God not to be self-righteous. Help us God to um, be explainers and apologists. Help us God to be um, bold, but Lord, help us never to um, beat other people over the head, to um, use your word as a a weapon. Rather Lord, Lord us to uh, bear witness to people and help them to understand how precious Life is in your sight so that they would be able to come to the same conclusions on their own, they would be able to realize the value of life and the implications of ending it. Father, just um, give us um, your Holy Spirit to guide us and use your truth. Father, we love you. Thank you, God.
1: I do so. I.
0: As we've said before, one of the things that I love about Heidelberg catechism is it's very—it's very, it's very human. It's very warm. It's very—I think—much more um, feels more embraceable to me than Westminster. It seems more, um, you know, on the level of a child of a beginner, and it just helps me to, to, to recite these things, remember these things, faith. So the question is, what do you understand by the providence of God? And the response says, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby, as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and bearing years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Praise God for that tree. Thank you for being here, God
1: bless you.